You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. I want to thank you for this invitation. I've been looking forward to holding this meeting for a long time. Ever since Jay moved here. And uh, that's been 10 or 11 years ago. I appreciate the invitation. We talk about the God that we worship. So many people have the wrong idea about God. And not just not just atheists or people who are so many Christians have a wrong idea about God. So if we're going to worship God the way that we ought to, we need to understand who he is. And a lot of times we forget that we serve a truly awesome God. He is not just better than us. He's not just greater than us. He is a totally different level of being. He is the creator. And we're going to look at that more this evening. Uh, There are many supposed gods. For example, if you talk to a Muslim, you're going to, Hear about a God of absolute oneness. Now we, we have a God that is revealed to us in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, they, that, that, as far as they're concerned, that's three gods. There, there's a, theirs is a God of absolute oneness. And, and that's not the Bible God that we uh, have before us. So, while there is absolutely only one God. He's not a God of absolute oneness. He's revealed to us in three different persons. If I could explain it to you, I'd be God. I just know that that's how He's revealed Himself to us. So, then there is also the idea of the many gods of Hinduism or the many gods of the uh, Greeks and the Romans and, and such. You know, they have a God of thunder. They had a God of the sea, God of the sky, God of this, God of that. And Paul, even when he was going through Athens, said, I noticed that you were in all things very religious or superstitious. And he says, I even saw an altar to the unknown God, him whom you worship in ignorance, I now declare unto you. And Paul describes for them the God of the Bible. So many times atheists will look at us and say, well, where did God come from? They've got a wrong conception of God. We're going to cover that in a little bit. It's not a man-made God. He's a God that is above and beyond and not part of our, our created universe. He's not the God like the gods of the Hinduism. There was a preacher that was on a missionary journey in India a number of years ago, and his driver was going along, and somehow they hit a bump and went off the side of the road and knocked a stone over in the middle of some guy's yard. And he didn't think anything about it. The guy said, no, this is serious because we just knocked over his God, but don't worry about it. So he went up to the house. He says, I'm sorry we knocked over your God, but you need to have a God that people can't knock over. And he talked to him about Jesus. I don't know what the outcome was, but we need to understand that our God 
is not like one of the many gods that people have invented for themselves. There is the belief that God is everything and everything is God. Now, can you point out a place where God isn't? I can't either. The little boy was on home, on his way home from Sunday school one time in a, in a little town in the south years ago and the village scoffer stopped him and he says, young man, I'll give you a quarter if you can show me where God is. And the little boy thought about it for a second. He says, well, you know, I don't have a dollar, but if I had a dollar, I'd give you a dollar if you could show me where God isn't. And he, he didn't. So he couldn't point to a place where God wasn't. There's enough truth in the fact that God is everywhere that people are seduced by the idea that God is everything and everything is God. That's not true. God is everywhere, but He's not everything. And then there are people that we come in contact with. They will never really admit it. Well, except for Jamie Foxx who called... Uh, Barack Obama, his Lord and Savior. Uh, but they worship men. Or they worship their nation. Or they worship something invented by men. They would never say so. But that's what gets priority. Well, they are telling us what they worship. Whatever you worship is going to get top priority in your life. But we're going to look at the God of the Bible. What about this God that we worship? One, He has no beginning and no end. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 90 and verse 1, the psalm was written by Moses. And it says here, Psalm 90, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Is God ever going to end? No. Can you explain that to me? I can't explain it to you either. But there's something else that really humbles me, and that is God has no beginning. I can come a whole lot closer to explaining to you that God has no end than I could ever come to explaining to you that God has no beginning. But we live in a universe, we live in a what they call a, a time-space continuum. Star, thank you, Star Trek. We live in a time-space continuum where everything has a beginning and everything has an end. But God's not part of this. He's above it and beyond it. He's the one that brought it into being. He has no beginning. He has no end. I can't explain it any better than to say that's what the Bible reveals to us about Him. Physicists are trying to figure out, well, what happened before the Big Bang? What was there before the Big Bang? And by the way, I believe in the Big Bang. God spoke and bang, it happened. That's about all the more you need explanation you need. Because whatever was there before the Big Bang, by definition, is God. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. If there was ever a time when there was nothing at all, nothing would exist now. And yet here we are. 
Our God has no beginning. Our God has no end. He is, according to the book of Genesis, the Almighty. If we take a look at Genesis chapter 17, God appears to Abram, and He says here in Genesis 17, one beginning, He says, Abram was 90 years old and nine. Jehovah appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant with thee. And he goes on and he goes on about this covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. He says, I am the Almighty. So many times people have forgotten that God is the Almighty. Now, Nothing that is subject to power is beyond him. Somebody likes to say, the village scoffer likes to say, well, can he make a square circle? No. That's not something subject to power. That's something that is a logical contradiction, and God doesn't contradict himself. All logic expresses itself from the heart of God. And so those things that are defined like a circle or a square. You can't make a square circle. That's not something subject to power. But if you take a look at the universe, our sun is 93 million miles away and you go out in the summer in Kansas and you can get a sunburn. It'll burn you if you're out there long enough. 93 million miles away, that's a lot of power. And what, how did that get there? He spoke it into existence. We're talking about a totally different level of being. The highest level. Nothing that is subject to power is beyond Him. All the energy that we're using today was created by God in the beginning. Put in the sun, then sun grew plants, plants became coal, and here we are using them. The nuclear energy that's being used, whatever that is, gas, he created it all. Every bit of it. What about the God that we worship? He's not limited by space. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 23, God says, Am I a God of near at hand and not a God of far off? Can any man hide himself in the secret places that I cannot see? Do I not fill heaven and earth? We look in books, or we look in telescopes, and we see stars that they tell us are so far away that light takes billions of years to reach us. And yet God is there right now. And He knows exactly what's going on there. He knows every atom. He knows every molecule. He knows everything that's going on everywhere. The hairs of your head are numbered. He's not limited by space. Isaiah chapter 40, and beginning in verse 9. Isaiah says to us, and when I get there, he says, beginning in verse 9, he says, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one. 
His arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and he will recompense for him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms, carry them in his bosom and will gently feed those who that have their young. He's describing the God that, that, we, that we know. He's not limited by space. What about the God we worship? He's a God of knowledge. How many of you remember, some of you I'm sure do, remember the cover of Time magazine back in the 60s that said, God is dead. I remember the, the hullabaloo about it. I wasn't a member of the church. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't even thinking in terms of religion back in those days. But I remember the, the cover and inside was an article about physicists, young physicists at a certain prestigious university that were doing research in physics and they asked them, do you think if there's a God, do you think if He really exists, that he understands the theories that you're using to describe the universe? You know what they said? No, I don't think he understands what we're doing at all. And even as a non-religious person, I thought if there's a God that exists, that's a stupid answer. If he exists and if he spoke the universe into existence, he certainly knows more about physics than you do. But He is the God of knowledge. Take a look at Psalm 139. The psalmist there describes God and he says, Whither shall I flee from thy spirit? Oops. Get on over there. He says, Jehovah, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou searchest out my path and and my lying down art acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but lo, O Jehovah, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me and thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. He's describing a God that knows everything. God is the source of all knowledge. So he says, well, yeah, he's the source of all religious knowledge. No, he's the source of all knowledge. Who invented mathematics? God did. Who invented chemistry? God did. Who invented physics? Who invented astronomy? Who invented sociology? God did. He's the God of all knowledge. He knows what would have happened in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 through 24. Yeah, 29 through 24. 20 through 24, he talks about if the signs had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, which were done in Capernaum, they'd have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He not only knows what did happen, they didn't repent. He knows what would have happened. He understands things. 
He can tell from the end from the beginning by speaking the future as if it were past. If you take a look at Isaiah 45, God has given a message to Isaiah and uh, it's kind of important to understand Daniel chapter 9 that we understand this particular passage. He says, Thus saith Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus? Yeah, Cyrus the Great. 150 years from the time that Isaiah wrote this down, Isaiah, Cyrus was born. And yet God calls him by name 150 years earlier. He says, Thus saith Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make rough places smooth. I will break in pieces the doors of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And he goes on and he talks about Cyrus the Great, who is the king of Media and Persia. And the guy hadn't even been born yet. This was the one that brought Israel back from captivity, Judah back from captivity. He is the source of all knowledge and the recipient of none. Who's been God's counselor? No one. What about the God we worship? He's the God of life. When you walk out of this building, you look around, and you're going to see life everywhere. Even places that you don't think about it, there's life. Why? Because God is a God of life. He loves life. All life. Plant life, animal life, big life, little life. Everywhere we look, there are microorganisms and there are even the germs have germs. But God made them all. He is the God of life. He created the earth according to Isaiah 45 and verse 18. He created the earth to be inhabited. For thus saith Jehovah that created the heavens and God that formed the earth and made it, that established it, and created it not a waste, that formed it to be inhabited. God made it to be lived in. Didn't just happen. God designed it that way. God designed it. He designed it to be inhabited. He created the eye in Isaiah or Psalm 94 and verse 9. He that created the eye, shall he not see? He that planted the ear, does he not hear? And in, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, Moses, we don't think of Moses as an expert excuse maker. But when God called Moses to take, go back to Egypt, all of a sudden Moses made excuses. Uh, they, they won't listen to me. Uh, I, I don't speak very well. This, that, and the other. Finally, God got mad at him and said, Moses, who made God's tongue? Who, who, who made man's tongue? I did. I know you can speak, and I know Aaron can speak. Your brother's coming to meet you. He, he, he created things the way it is. He created it to be, to this world to be lived in. 
What about the God that we worship? He's a God of love. 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John is dealing with the problem with Gnostics in the first century. People who thought they had esoteric knowledge. Now I know that Jay's uh, Jay a pretty academic preacher. But I doubt he uses that word a whole lot. Esoteric means special insider knowledge. And I only used it because they would have loved, the Gnostics would have loved to have heard that word. Just, I'm special because I know more than you. That's basically what the Gnostics were saying. My sins don't bother me because I know, more, I know certain things. I know special things. So I don't have to worry about my sin. And John is writing, and he says here in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is begotten of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Here's one of the few places where God is defined. We're told that God is love. We're told in another place God is light. 1 John chapter 1. But He is a God of love. Not the mushy kind of romantic love. That's good stuff. I, I, I love romance. But that's not what we're talking about. He is a God of agape love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting. That's agape love. That's a love of the will. That's the love that can be commanded. God can tell you to love your neighbor that you don't really like. And He can expect you to do it. Because agape love is subject to command. You make up your mind to act in a certain way. That's what it means. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He made up His mind. It was an act of the will that He did that. Romantic love is created for our use. It's a blessing to us. But that's not what He's talking about. John 3.16, agape. Love of the will unconditional good will. He's a God of justice and judgment as well. He gave a command to be obeyed in Genesis chapter 2. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and of evil thou mayest not eat thereof, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Then Satan comes along and deceives Eve, hoodwinks her, one version says, and she eats and she finds out things have changed. Well, God gave that command. That was a very simple command. That was their entire religion. Don't eat of that tree. That's the only command. That was the only restriction. And they messed it up. Is it any wonder our world is such a pro has such a problem? Now we have many more restrictions because of that one restriction being broken. But He is a God of justice. He gave a command. He expected it to be obeyed. And He said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, You shall not surely die. 
Oh, he was a liar. They did die. Spiritually, they were separated from God. But also, physically, they were separated from the tree of life. So it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to die physically. It's kind of like this. When did Japan lose World War II? I can tell you exactly the moment it happened. 7.55 a.m. Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. That's when they lost World War II because they started World War II. They got us involved. That was when they lost. Now, it was four more years before they figured it out, but that was when they lost because the, de the decision was already made. Once the news got to America, the decision was made. They started it. We finished it. It's as simple as that. So it was with Adam and Eve. They broke the law, and yes, everything was set in motion that they would die physically. They died spiritually the very day because they were separated from God. But they died physically as a result of the actions that day. So he is a God of justice and judgment. Our God does not need certain things. We've talked about the various things that God is, various things that are like God, but our God does not need to be carried. Unless you want to think about carrying Him in your heart. But if you take a look at Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah is making fun of the idolaters in the nation of Israel. And he says here in Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 5, Hear ye the word which Jehovah speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith Jehovah, Learn not the ways of the nations, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are a vanity. For one cutteth the tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They're like the, the palm tree of turned work, and speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. The idolaters would take a piece of wood from a tree in the forest, and they'd cut it in half, and half of it they'd use as firewood to cook their breakfast, the other half, they'd carve into a god to bow down and worship. And he says, can that, can that god even walk? No, you've got to carry it. Remember Dagon in the book of Judges? He was knocked down several times. He couldn't get himself back up. The statue was broken because he couldn't defend himself. Because he didn't exist. Same way with all idolatrous gods. But our God does not need to be carried. He is everywhere. Our God does not need to be fed. The Greek gods got weaker if men stopped worshiping them. As you may have noticed, I like Star Trek. One of the original series episodes had them running into one of the gods of Greece. And he got weak because men didn't worship Him anymore. Our God doesn't need our worship. 
He doesn't need you to worship Him. He wants you to worship Him. He wants you to understand who He is. He wants you to appreciate all that He's done for you. He wants you to love Him. But if everybody on the planet turns their back on God, it doesn't hurt Him. He would be saddened, but it doesn't make Him weak. Psalm 50 and verse 10. The psalmist describes for us God's approach. And he says here, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7, Hear my people and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify unto thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices, and thy burnt offerings are continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy field. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field of mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. He says, I don't get hungry. If I did get hungry, I wouldn't tell you. There's nothing you can do about it. He doesn't need us to worship Him. He doesn't need us to feed Him. He does not need our worship. I just kind of mentioned that, so we'll skip again. He does not need us for Him to exist. The Star Trek episode, the God committed suicide because men didn't need Him anymore. He, did, he doesn't need us for Him to exist. He exists. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when God answers Moses' question, Whom shall I say sent me? What name shall I give them for the God that sent me? And He said, I am that I am. Tell them that I am hath sent you. What God was saying was, I am because I am. I am the self-existent one. That's why He's got no beginning. He exists because He exists. He does not need us for Him to exist. And He's a spirit. God is spirit. No man has seen God at any time. Not the Father. We've seen God the Son. God the Son. Many people in the first century got to see Jesus. There were people in the Old Testament that got to see Jesus as well. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. But uh, our God is a spirit. Not part of this realm. Not part of this realm. He brought this realm into existence. Our God is a God of truth. Paul says in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God who can not lie promised before times eternal. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 9 echoes the same idea. God can't lie. Jay, have you ever told a lie? Yeah. So so have I. Has there any is there anybody in here that hadn't told a lie? Anybody here that hadn't repented of telling a lie? Okay. We've all repented. That's good. That means we're truthful people now. The thing about God is he can't lie. Because his very nature is truth. He is truth. 
Jesus said in John chapter 17, Thy word is truth. God can't violate His nature. It's not in Him to do so. In that sense, He is an absolute. In a lot of ways, we're dealing with a God who's absolute. Jay and I, we're kind of mixed, we're mixtures. We've got good points and bad points. But God's absolutely good. He's absolutely just. He's absolutely loving. He's absolutely all-powerful. He's absolutely everywhere. We are dealing with a God that's far beyond all of our ability to comprehend or explain. Jesus says, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17 and verse 17. He has no need of falsehood to accomplish his, uh, his aims. One of the reasons that we as human beings fall prey to being like the devil who is the father of lies and the, the, the beginner of lies is that we think we can accomplish what we want by telling a lie easier than we can accomplish what we want by telling. But God doesn't have to lie. What can he accomplish by telling a lie that isn't better accomplished by telling the truth. He can't lie. It's, it's a violation of him. Satan is the father of falsehood. John chapter 8 and verse 44. God is a God of absolute justice as well. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13, he says, the end of all flesh has come before me. And then he talks about the flood that was coming. The thought of man's heart was only evil continually and violence filled the earth. Almost sounds like today, doesn't it? But he's describing a situation that was much, much, much worse than today. God repented himself that he made man. He changed his mind. This isn't working out. This isn't accomplishing what I want. So he found Noah. We found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham asked, shall not the judge of all the earth be right? Abraham understood that God could be appealed to to do the right thing. Shall not the He's going to judge everyone in the earth. He has to be absolutely righteous in order to do that. And so he is. God told Ezekiel, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That means you, me, everyone that sins. We've earned the death penalty, but by the grace of God, we can be saved. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be faithful. He's a God of mercy. You know, it's amazing. God has mercy on men. We rebel against Him. We, we wind up murdering His Son. We treat each other terribly. And yet God is still a God of mercy because He loves us. Thou art a God ready to pardon gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and forsookest them not. That's what Nehemiah said. 
looking back at his ancestors just 70 years before, God had to destroy the nation, but he didn't forsake them. He was bringing them back to the land that he promised. He still loved the nation. He, he loved the kings. Even King Manasseh, 55 years, he made this, the streets of Jerusalem run red with blood. So much so that God took him and put him in jail in Babylon. And while he was there, he turned to God. And God was approached by him. And God brought him back. And it was probably Manasseh in his penitent years that was a big influence on Josiah, who was a good king. He is a God of mercy. And I'm glad of that. Because I'm in the, I'm in the judgment box. And there was a man that was sitting in a trial. And he was at... Uh, his defense lawyer says, don't you worry, we'll get you justice. And the criminal turned to him and he says, man, I don't want justice. I want mercy. Because I'm guilty. And I know it. He wasn't wanting justice. He was wanting mercy. And thank the Lord, He is a God of mercy. He demands this quality to be developed in us. Who among us isn't challenged to be merciful. David counted on the mercies of God throughout the Psalms. Clear thou me of unknown sin. He counted on that. That was important. He's a God of forgiveness. Jay, you've never had to forgive your wife of anything, have you? Has she ever had to forgive you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We if you've been married more than five days, you probably know what forgiveness is. We count on that as human beings. It's important. But man has a hard time forgiving things. Don't we? Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21, Peter says, you know, How many times should I forgive my brother if he sinned against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, Oh, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. You mean if I go 481 times, I don't have to forget? No. no, Jesus was using a figure of speech. Don't count the times you forgive because we don't want God to count the times He forgives us, do we? God is abundantly willing to forgive. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 55. For years, I used this passage just to say that God was higher than man. And it certainly does teach that. But I was taking it totally and completely out of context. Because the thrust of the passage isn't that God is higher than man. Let's back up to verse 1. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? 
Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you after the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander to the peoples. Behold, thou shalt call a nation which thou knowest not, and a nation which knew not thee shall run unto thee because of Jehovah thy God, for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye Jehovah while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto Jehovah and he will have mercy on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. But as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God is saying is, don't think that I'm like the guy down the street. He may offer forgiveness and then change his mind. Not me. I'm offering forgiveness of a deeper and permanent kind. And you can count on it. God is not willing that any should perish, Paul tells us in the New Testament, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. He is a God that loves to forgive sin because He knows what's coming afterwards if He doesn't. But He conditions our forgiveness on the way that we forgive others. If we don't learn to forgive others, why should we expect God to forgive us? Don't we expect that of our children to learn that? Yeah, we do. And so God expects that of us. Paul reinforces this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, where he says, As Christ, as you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus, so also forgive you one another. We serve and we worship an awesome, wonderful God. No God of the heathens or pagans even comes close. People that don't understand say, the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims all worship the same God. No, we don't. The Jews and us do, but the Muslims invented their own. Not, and, and there's nothing anywhere else that even comes close to coming close to this. No man, however good, is worthy. The most righteous person you know is not worthy of God. But God wants us all, no matter how filthy, no matter how unrighteous, no matter how wicked, to come to Him. He's not willing that any should perish. His in, inherent attributes and His character are awe-inspiring. It's like, wow. And yet, we should therefore give heed to how we approach Him. I have noticed that many people in recent years have taken the word Abba as it's given in the book of Galatians where we cry Abba, Father. And they say, well, that means Daddy. So we're real close. That's not what it means. We in America don't use the word Father. It's almost 
if somebody child calls their male parent father, it's almost, oh, it's terrible. That was a term of endearment, of love, and incredible respect. It didn't imply any distance between the people at all. He is our father. He is our Abba. But he's not our buddy. Sometimes I hear prayers led at church and they're almost like, God's our buddy, I'm his buddy, he's my buddy, we get along just great. No. He may be your father, but you can't call him dad. You can't approach him on a familiar... I, I am exactly like my dad, my earthly father. If he were still alive, in a whole lot of ways, we'd be equals. But I'll never be God's equal. Not even close. We need to give thought and reverence to the way we approach. Let's be neither be flippant nor terrified, but let us be filled with a solemn reverence for who we worship because He is not like anyone else. You need to answer the Lord's invitation to come to know the God that I've been describing here this evening. Everything is ready. What will your answer be? If you need to answer the Lord's invitation to become a Christian by faith, repentance, confession, baptism, now's the time. No better time. You can't do it yesterday. You can't do it tomorrow. But you can do it right now. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.